Hi, everyone. Mind Rolling Podcast is back, and it's Dave and I again. That's what they call us when they you see the descriptions on iTunes and stuff, right? Dave and Raghu, Raghu and Dave. No last names anymore. We're kind of like, I guess they have like the Morning Joe show. Whatever that schmoey thing. What is that? <laughs> it's nice to start off yeah, with Yeah, we're two schmoes, I guess. There's nothing to do about it. I do it. watch Morning Schmo, but, you know, I've got so sick of it because, you know, it, it, it ends up being that kind of schmentertainment, schmooze, news. You know? <laughs> schmentertainment. I like, I like um, Russell Brown's news. He calls it truths. And uh, it's closer to news than that. But we're not that, folks. We are, we are uh, analyzers of all levels of depth and banality together. Uh, Jesus, that's a great description. Let's put that on iTunes or on mindrollingpodcast.com. Slightly puts us down, particularly me, because <laughs> I can be really rather expertly hey. banal. You know, I, I there's so much crazy shit. I have a lot of crazy shit relationship-wise. Uh, not my direct relationship, my wife, uh, but uh, just in general, tons of people that I know, and it just it's sort of like I don't know. Is it Mercury or one of those crazy ass astrological things that the New Age talks about? I think it's Uranus rising. Actually, uh, yes, that's most likely. Or uh, Uranus Uranus rec retrograde with uh, naming a planet that. It was a retrograde thing to do to begin with, in my opinion. It's caused nothing but really lame, dirty jokes for hundreds of years. Why couldn't they have called it, you know, like <laughs> daffodil or something? I don't know. Yeah. Anyhow, you were telling me about, uh, it's, you think relations, you think there's problem with a couple of people and, and, and their relationship uh, on any level? Tell me about well, the one you mentioned. <laughs> when, 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 I, when, I, when I wrote the film about the Beatles, I found out all kinds of stuff. But actually, since YouTube and all of that, I've found out a lot more. Uh, you know, that you can't imagine a more tightly knit sort of group than the Beatles, really, you know, because they were a tight band. I mean, they, that's one of their great uh, attributes is that they were so tight and they just didn't waste any, any notes and, and any words. And they were, they were just like phenomenal like that. But by the end of the deal, by Let It Be, and Abbey Road, apparently George Harrison was so alienated from John and Paul that he would just go into the studio and literally, and I've seen a little bit of it on film, where he would say to John or Paul, particularly Paul, I think he'd say, okay, what do you want me to play? And they'd say, well, play the lead six bars. And then they go, okay, I'll do that. After all, I have no ideas. And there was a clear, clear hostility going on between George Harrison, our wonderful George Harrison, and, and, and John and Paul. And it was because oh, by both that of them. Time, both of them, both John and Paul, not just Paul. Yeah, yeah. And of course, John and Paul had their own problems. They all had problems because if you stick together with one thing long enough, problems will come out because there's a lot of ego that still is there. And uh, yeah. I think that despite all of their affable and charming and witty personalities, there was a lot of, you know, it, they just didn't get along at the end. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah. know, I think that happens in relationships when we, we react before we, we relate you know, I mean, it's just, it, I don't want to get too Buddhist about it. But, I mean, you know, Buddhist teachers talk about that. You know, they say, well, you know, stop reacting and start relating. Start relating to the thought you're having about reacting, you know. And yeah. Usually we don't have time to do that. And George Harrison, we all love him. He, he is a great guy and, you know, a, a truly spiritual human being, I think. And yet at the end of the day, he couldn't deal with the fact that he was being sort of marginalized in the yeah. Beatles. You know? Right, yeah. Well, he showed them, didn't he? He did, did. Yes. Um, 
so uh, this brings up for me uh, something um, I, I found that I loved. It's nothing new. It's old, music-wise. Stevie oh. Ray Vaughan, just abs- You know, sometimes you just find these things. Maybe it's on Facebook or whatever. They just come up out of the blue, and you remember, oh, my God, this guy could play. And the feel and the sensitivity and, and the emotive uh, quality that he had was just so superlative. So uh, w- this is the point in the show when we all go, Dave and I go, and everybody else goes, okay, we're going to talk about Amazon portals and supporting Mind Rolling and MindPodNetwork.com by um, you know bookmarking all of that. And that. So what I want to do is... Screw that for the moment. I just got to play a little bit of this song. And I we could get in really, you know, trouble, right? Yeah. We don't care. We don't care. We're going to play. Just going to play you just a little bit of this uh, solo from Stevie. All the people down there. Kill it for the whiskey. Why did you Vaughn, the slow blues is where that comes from. And if you have never heard that or some of the other Stevie Ray stuff, then you must absolutely, and if this doesn't prompt you to do that, I don't know what will, go out and get. And here's a collection, Dave. There's a collection, a new collection, Stevie Ray Vaughn and Double Troubles, the complete epic recordings collection. And uh, it has uh, something called A Legend in the Making, live at the El Mocambo, recorded in 1983 and never previously released on CD. I want to get it. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. And I know you know, you told me about another record that I don't know about from Stevie. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a record called Under the Red Sky by Bob Dylan, one of his slightly unknown records that was put down heavily by critics. And maybe I'm just 
you know, such a fan. I can't hear that stuff. I bought it and love it. And Stevie Ray Vaughan plays lead guitar in it. So it's an amazing combination to hear Bob and Stevie Ray. And also, those of you that love David Bowie, David Bowie's first real major number one hit was called Let's Dance. And the brilliant, uh, marvelous uh, guitar solo in that is also Stevie Ray Vaughan. So, you know, we were very sad when he died in the helicopter crash. And we, we, um, we love him. Yeah. So there you go. That's uh, uh, Dave, give us your recommendations here because well, this is our, uh, you this know, is more is, valuable than us going on about Amazon. You know, I learned about Chai, uh, not in India, but um, through Raghu and, and, and Krishan Das and, and other people who made great Chai because they learned in, in India. And we've been pushing this thing called Nature's Guru Chai, and they've got a new one out. It's called ginger chai. Hmm. And even though that doesn't actually, it's not kind of my thing, maybe. I'm going to try it. Ginger chai. I'm just wondering what it's like. So go to Amazon and you'll see Nature's Guru, ginger chai. You'll also see Marsala chai and cardamom chai. We recommend them all because they're... I love the cardamom. In, ...in India, but it's it's pretty good. It's, it'll make you happy. Yep. And uh, I also want to recommend Miracle of Love. Ramdas's book about Maharaji, because no matter how many times I've read or gone into it, or thousands of times, the book just always blows me away. And uh, do you know I, that you can get it on uh, either at uh, on a Kindle or on, you know, on the iBook at the iBook store? You can get it digital version of that book, which only came out for the first time last uh, September, August. That was the first time it became available as a digital book. Uh, huh. So, yeah, please go. That'll have nothing to do with us whatsoever to support our needy, needy selves. But do go to, you know, Am well, no, go to Amazon. Get the book on Amazon. We'll get a little piece there. Yeah, and the different versions are on there, Raga. The, the, old, the one with the old cover and the newer cover uh, are both available, I was surprised to see. And so you can get whichever one you want. But it's not that expensive, and it will help us, and it'll give you a real insight into some of the details, the, the marvelous details of uh, Maharaji's, uh, uh, I can't even think of the word, universe is the only Exploits. word I can think of. Yeah. yeah. So is that it for the recommendations, Rog? You got any well, more? no, I, you, I'm going to tell you something you don't even know about. All right. Well, maybe you do. I don't know if you've watched the email train. Uh, for MindPod Network, but MindPod Network is going to release a, I think it's around just under 20, 15 to 20 new T-shirts with incredible designs of all sorts representing the whole group of podcasters, Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon, and Jack Cornfield. And soon to be joining us, I hope within the next uh, couple of weeks, will be Lama Suryadas, who is a kick, who you've all heard uh, on a couple of podcasts that David and I have done. So we're really happy. This whole thing is growing, and we really appreciate everything that uh, that's happening because you, everybody who's listening, you are definitely part of this, and it's making this uh, a, a really fun, happy thing for us to be doing, sharing this stuff. So uh, I do have something, David. Uh, it's about... Uh, it's going back to our the end of, stories from the end of the world. Ah, okay? it's back. It's, it's back. back. We're back. In India, 400 men cut off their testicles to get closer to God, following advice, advice from the guru. 
And the, the guru is the first words to describe this guru. Okay, in, there's nothing like India. I mean, nothing. The first uh, words are multi-millionaire religious guru. <laughs> All of those words are in one little four-word thing to describe <laughs> this guy. I'm not going to mention his name, okay, because I think it's... Uh, it's it's just too far out and uh, but he persuaded around 400 of his estimated 50 million followers worldwide to cut off their testicles to bring them closer to god uh, the details of the bizarre incident have only just come to light i mean this is serious this is not a, a, a apparently reportedly taking place in 2000 at a hospital run by the guru the cbi which is like the fbi in America, Central Bureau of Investigation, has reportedly accused him of grievous bodily harm, and he is under investigation. He's been previously been questioned over the, oh God, murder of investigative journalist and female follower, sexual, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, um, yeah, news from the end of the world. Well, it just points this. up, doesn't it, that the word guru doesn't necessarily mean, mean anything. A nine teacher or master or siddha. I mean, there's difference, huge difference here. Oh, yeah. my God, very much. Um, now, is I, Vivica, Raga, is Vivica the word for discrimination? Is that? Yes. Yeah, well, this, this proves that you have to, you know, people put things down because of one bad thing or whatever. And it just proves that part of the part of the dharma, if you like, is discrimination and knowing what's real and what isn't, or at least making your own judgment about some people mm. call themselves something and they're simply not, you know, and it's like everybody can be a director. Well, everybody can be a guru now. And uh, this guy is very popular. And, um, you know, uh, I just think castration in the name of the lord is, <laughs> that's is, a song is, is totally <laughs> ro out wrong it's get wrong. out of here yes no we're we're in agreement on that it's very wrong now here's something positive or at least yeah let, we're this is uplifting and uh this this is the uh this is about psychedelics all right we're back to that we did that show a couple of times ago uh fantastic i thought that article that we talked about uh but this is a new study and of all places at the university of alabama okay oh. psychedelics alabama it doesn't go at uh, Birmingham School of Public Health, found that participant, participants who took controlled doses of classic, I like that, huh? Psychedelics, magic mushrooms, DMT, mescaline, and LSD had significantly reduced incidence of suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts, and psychological distress in the long term. <laughs> Isn't well we should be, we're not taking enough acid on a week to week, right? I mean, that's what this is showing. Um, the study uh, analyzed data from a national survey on drug use and health uh, that measures substance abuse in relation to mental illness. So, you know, how people say LSD puts you crazy, man, and then you go jump out the window. That's not true. The data was between 2008 and 12, and it was 190,000 adults. I mean, that's not nothing. Uh, they, uh, and it was online answering pre-recorded questions about their individual use of classic, quote-unquote, psychedelics. Uh, so, uh, so this whole thing is related to the reality of psychedelics helping 
with uh, people who have uh, are obviously deeply, deeply depressed and have suicidal tendencies. And that goes with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, around the, uh, of course, people who are actually dying, people with PTSD, and how they're now going out there and working with all these different kinds of groups to see the efficacy of, of what uh, psychedelics bring. It's pretty amazing, no? I think it is. I mean, I, in the heyday of this, when it was, you know, happening in in, in the sixties, I would never, honestly, I would never have foreseen this as being a, a sort of um, societal interest. You know, where people, are, you know, not hippies and not drug addicts, but people of genuine, you know, who want to do things to help other people and heal. I would never have thought this was going to happen. I, I'm really, um, I'm really surprised, yeah. and it's great. It's great, you know. I mean, with the you know, with the caveat that you know, if you do have tremendous depression or problems of that order, I mean, obviously uh, there are other things you have to attend to, and we keep saying it. And uh, yeah, it's just Mr. Leary and Mr. Alpert said it first, which was set and setting. Make sure that when you take this stuff, you're in the right setting with the right people, and certainly if it's the first time, do not do it in a cavalier manner. Do not. So having said that, we're seeing some real amazing developments. That's great, Ron. Yeah. It's not just that, too, though. It's also, uh, I mean, this, this isn't a magic bullet. Okay, I'm depressed and I'm thinking of killing myself, so I'm going to take a hit of acid. I mean, this is not a reality. And yes, set and setting and doing it in a proper way with, with, with guide, uh, the way they do ayahuasca, uh, is certainly high on the list of things to do when you do it, or at least be with a trusted friend who who has had the experience and so on. But I think you also have to you do have to attend to the regular. Um, I mean, therapy with the right therapy is is obviously something that has to be there. Maybe there's chemical imbalances. Maybe you, you so people taking uh, compounds. Uh, I, I you know I don't I, I think that's part of it all. Uh, given the the lifestyle that we have these days, I don't think you can just. I mean, we had Bhavaram on a few weeks ago, or week before last, I guess, um, who is uh, the war correspondent, who ended up with uh, severe, severe pain and uh, cancer and um, depression, and uh, couldn't work eventually, and was addicted to so many uh, painkillers and so on, and then he did. He had a magic bullet. His magic bullet was yoga, right? Uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, he dedicated himself. I mean, he got getting up three four in the morning. I mean, he really was motivated uh, because he the, he was a lost cause otherwise. So that that uh, is obviously somebody with with huge uh, uh, willpower determination uh, that uh, served him well in this case. It's how he got to be a war correspondent as as well. Um, so, uh, but I think that, uh, I think we should take advantage. Uh, I don't know why I'm getting so serious about this subject, you know, the psychedelics and, uh, and, uh, suicide, uh, uh, is, is a, is a pretty intense subject matter. But I just think that, uh, there's a wide range of things that are available today for, uh, illnesses. And, uh, just like if you were sick with a physical illness, you, you wouldn't, I mean, some people dis just do alternative treatment. I, I guess in my mind, I would, 
everything would be part of the consideration depending on the circumstances and and this thing where they they they're actually giving single doses of psilocybin to people with advanced stage cancer and and that reduced the long-term incidences of depression and anxiety and i think that is a terrific thing mm -hmm. uh, if you just get uh, identified with who you really are on that uh, on psilocybin or any of these psychedelics and that really helps inform um letting go of fear and so on and so forth yeah oh god yeah yeah well it's good because we started this up with the end of the world thing but we're living in a pluralistic kind of situation where some things seem to be going to the dogs or going to hell and there are other signs of great evolution of thought and and opinion uh, seeing police chiefs on CNN talking about replacing the time spent on arresting marijuana users uh, with other with other matters that are much more urgent and dangerous, uh, seeing multiple people doing that. Rand Paul uh, advocating, you know, well, he's a libertarian, but I mean, you know, people advocating stopping this nonsense of arresting people for. A plant. It's like it's just crazy. Jonathan Swift, the satirist, would have written something called, you know, let's legalize broccoli. You know, I mean, in other words, it's like saying you can't eat broccoli and we're going to arrest you for it. It's it's so crazy. It's a, <laughs> it's a and you know, I, I just think that it's wonderful that in the United States uh, we're coming closer to. It's not everywhere. But, you know, it's happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, 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 you know, it's not just so people can, quote, have fun. It's so people can uh, learn a little bit about themselves, because that's certainly been true of me. Uh, marijuana is a, is a self-teacher. And again, we're not saying smoke it if it's going to hurt you or if you're frightened of it or whatever. But just, you know, let's be uh, let's be open well, to this. Yeah. And the, the fact that they are uh, the go the government's obviously allowing these experimentations to go on right. at this point is is major. Let's see what happens when the new Republican president gets in with the completely controlled Congress. Please. I know. That's I, news from the end of the world. You mean <laughs> the monarchy, the corporate monarchy that we've entered where Bush and Clinton, a king and a queen from a, a mono, from a, a lineage of monarchs, we might as well just throw away the Constitution. And why have Congress? Let's just have a king or a queen or an yeah. emperor. If it's Bush, for sure. If it's Jeb, Jeb. <laughs> Yeah. Who calls their kids Jeff? Anyway, I'm not going to go there. All right. I'm no, not going please. there. No, that's why we need uh, we need Danny Goldberg back on the show. And, and we're we're, we're, ta we're talking to him and beseeching him right as we speak. Yeah. Um, we, react, we react to this in madness. So. Yeah, <laughs> really badly. Uh, Dave, I, I asked. Dave wrote this incredible uh, article, and I want to hear it. I I only know highlights of it, and he wouldn't he wouldn't read me the thing. He wouldn't send it to me. It's very 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 private. Uh, but he's going to uh, expose it right now. Uh, so well, I, I said, please read this. Uh, everyone will love this because it's it's better to hear somebody. It's like books on tape, right? Or yeah. audible.com where you can go and get a subscription. Well, <laughs> go you ahead. Know, people have asked me, you know, we, we wrote, I wrote quite a few blogs actually and then stopped writing them because my brain just refused. And um, I've come back and this is a blog. But then, you know, Sort of re read it, and then you can read it on, on MindPod Network at some point fairly soon. It starts off with a quote, a rather long one, so bear with me, from Choki Nyima Rinpoche, who's one of the great, great lamas. And, and you know, he wrote this thing which struck me. And I'm just going to read it to you, then I'll read the rest of my blog. 
This is from Chokey. The problem is that our essential nature, the innate state of Dharmakaya, is simply so close to ourselves, we can't see it. It's too easy, so it's hard to trust. It's so familiar to ourselves that it seems foreign. When something is too familiar, it's like a person who we are really close to. We don't have much respect or deep appreciation for him or her. But if someone new comes in, we'll stand up and join our palms together in respect. That's why it's said, the one with whom you are too familiar, too well acquainted, you disrespect. That which is closest is one's own Buddha nature, but we lack respect for it in the sense of truly appreciating it. Not appreciating it, we ignore it and foolishly look elsewhere. Therefore, it is said that it is truly foolish to hope for the state of enlightenment to come from some other place. Awareness is empty in essence and cognizant by nature. These two qualities, empty and cognizant, are not two separate things, nor are they one concrete thing. The important point is that at the moment of recognizing this basic state of awareness, not even one of the 84,000 types of disturbing emotions has any place to remain. Subtle anxiety is not present. The Manjushri Nama Samgirti says, the true meaning is beyond fear. Okay. Wow. I found those words. Yeah, That's really. Wow. Big, wow. I found those words sometime in early 2014. Then, almost immediately, I lost the source of the quote somewhere in the foggy Mac interland. And even though I looked through Choki and his father, Tulku Orgyan Rinpoche's books, I couldn't find it. In other words, I allowed myself to lose and forget this crystal clear teaching, lost it in cyberspace. Well, I found it last week. Okay, in the year in between, instead of assiduously rereading this quintessentially wise quote, I showed a great deal more interest in Homeland, the ups and downs of my English football team, Manchester United, and YouTube 60s live British invasion rock clips of the Stones and the Faces. I was plenty enamored with Turner classic movies, more recondite films, noir, during this time between mislaying Chokey's wards and finding them again. I spent tons of time in tail-chasing thoughts involving my family, my memories, recurring angry, anger at political cruelty and idiocy, all my contortions of mental activity. There were oodles of hours in Manhattan restaurants. There were intricate examinations of the BBC Premier League football gossip page. There were multiple afternoons whiling away my time in a mix of money anxiety, subterranean revenge fantasies, lustful ponderings. <laughs> Some of these pleasant or not so pleasant distractions were tiny molecular moments, tiny molecular moments. Some were much longer. But Chokey's description of where it really is was ignored. Just like we, as he says, ignore our closest reality ourselves, the one with whom you are too familiar, too well acquainted, you disrespect. That which is closest in one's own Buddha nature, but we like respect for it in the sense of truly appreciating it. You always heard the one you love was a pop hit at the end of World War II. Obviously, it's about romantic love and the built-in neurosis of much of it. In the context of Choki's statement, it applies to oneself. You hurt yourself by not showing respect for what you really are. You refuse to love the one who is the closest to you, yourself, with a capital S. How can this be? It's like the fish only knows what water is when they jump out of it. Because of acculturation, consumerist inculcation, underlying murmurs of I can't get no satisfaction and vaguely believing that the big answers always lie somewhere else, Tibet, India, Brazil. 
in as yet undiscovered teaching, in plants, in nicer pants, in another dance, in another fantasy playground of Maya. This leads to the personalization of being here now. Not only authentically inhabiting the present, your present, our present, but also remembering how to feel the presence, which is omnipresent, quantum analogized in the very deepest appreciation of just simply being alive and the doctor always being resident right here in the house, rather than in some unreachable cosmic hospital, which unfortunately is continuously empty of doctors, nurses and patients. The enlightenment comes from actually being happy with nothing being a happy tourist in your own city. The life you lead, from washing the dishes, to speeding on the highway, to arguing with your mother, to being alone in the park, in a rain shower, to throwing up, to filming your own skydiving, to cleaning up the yard, to gossiping with your accountant, to being bemused by the sudden freezing up of your laptop, to seeing a great movie, to daydreaming in your early morning bed. Every little thing is replete with all the rapture and misery and simultaneously digging deeper with the mystery, clarity and safety of real living. Walt Whitman expressed this presentiment in most of his work. Within the gigantically diverse elements of perceived life is a simple loveliness, a simple loveliness and vibrant cognizant emptiness. All the distractions that grip us so much of the time and even all the religious rules and regs some of us have been inculcated with, all of this complexity, some fleeting, some eternally true, all of this is embraced lovingly yet totally by the knowledge that we already are everything we seek. Our simplest, most lucid, most heartfelt feeling of livingness is there, right there, right here, and like this can be, trembling with the anticipation that you yourself will feel its radiance and be transported by its love, its pervasive love. That's it. Jesus. For God's sake, that's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, it it's fantastic. I'm serious, folks. I did not ever... I just had a, a, a glimpse of what it might be, but I didn't hear it until this moment with you all. Uh, David, no, it's really great. It really is. I mean, uh, you know, riffing off of that choky thing is really, uh, which is so, God, is that great. I have never heard that either. I don't know it as well. Uh, this is a real sharing. You've done something here. You really have. <laughs> it's really well, you know, Raghu, it's funny because I find many of these Buddhist masters really get to the point very quickly. We think of them as very esoteric and some of the writings are and so forth and the, and the exegesis of their writing. But I find that they just get to the point really quickly in the same way that Ramdas does and, and, and so on. And, 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 you know, when you're around Jack Cornfield, I mean, whether you're reading him or listening to him or sitting next to him, it's straight talk, you know, and even though this this piece I wrote is a little bit flowery, um, it's supposed to say something that I'm obsessed with right now, which is that it, it is here. And, you know, Mary O'Malley, who Rago and I talked to last week, uh, was very good at this. Uh, she quoted Joseph Campbell's talking, Joseph Campbell talking about the rapture that is right next to us, you know. And that's what Choki's statement about. And interestingly enough, his quote ends with that it, it eradicates fear, that as you begin to see that you don't have to uh, you don't have to go in any given direction that if you feel it you feel it if you feel it is real and um, I gotta say that with all the decades of life that I've been on the planet it never occurred to me until fairly recently that um, we have what we need um, there's a piece by um, 
Thich Nhat Hanh in, in the new Shambhala Sun, which starts off with something about, we have everything we need. We have everything we need. Mm. Anyway. Um, uh, the, I love the part, though, in the beginning, where you talk about all of the things that uh, we do to distract ourselves, Manchester United and uh, hanging out and gossiping in restaurants about God knows what. Uh, whatever it is that we can possibly do to distract ourselves is uh, reminds me. Larry David did a show once where he got stoned with his father. His father had glaucoma and he was getting him some pot. And his father said, well, Larry, he said, well, here it is. Go ahead, smoke this. You'll be fine. And he said, well, Larry, I can't do it alone. You got to do it with me. He goes, no, I don't smoke pot. Are you kidding? I'm so paranoid. Larry, you got it. So Larry ended up doing it. And the next scene after they were smoking is in the bathroom and he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's going, what is wrong with you? Watching TV? You got to read. I go through whatever I think of myself. Okay. Instead, you know, I'm watching, uh, you know, some lame show on Netflix or something. Um, when I I could be really devoting myself to spiritual practice, I have that thought, and that's the first thing I think of is Larry looking at himself in the mirror. <laughs> you know, uh, Rago, this week I was distracting myself watching television, and a strange thing happened. Within an hour, uh, I saw two things. One was some show about the Bush Memorial, whatever presidential house, and it was an interview with Laura Bush, um, uh, and she was talking about women's rights and stuff, but. She did a little tour of the of the Bush uh, Center, and the very first thing that you see when you walk in there, and they showed it, was a marvelous picture of the president, President Bush, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. The very first thing, a large picture of the two of them together, uh. and my heart went out to it because we know we've all got our criticisms of W and so on, but he did extend a very a very warm welcome, to, and it was well documented. And then I went to House of Cards. And was watching it, even though I'm not crazy about that show, but the one with Kevin Spacey, I'm addicted to it. And the very first one that I happen to see is a thing where he, as the president of the United States, is watching uh, a huge mandala being created by a bunch of real Buddhist monks, really? Tibetan monks uh, in the White House. And he can't believe it's happening. It's not, he didn't make it happen. But they are actually doing it. So in the middle of this shooting somewhere that they did uh, in this fake White House that they built for Kevin Spacey's show, uh, there are, they have to be real because they're making a real mandala. They're blowing, you know, they're blowing wow. through those little things with the, the sand, the dyed sand, and they make the whole thing. That's and then, of course, at the end of it, they destroy it, which is what they do. And it was such a beautiful, clever thing that they did there because in the middle of all the machinations of... Um, of the president and his wife, played by Robin Wright, and the sleazy, as Ramdas has called it, world of House of Cards, and he referred to it recently. Um, you've got these Buddhist monks creating this marvelous mandala and then destroying it and implying the impermanence of even, uh, you know, beauty. Mm. And it was just a great move on the part of those producers. But I saw those two things in my distracted state and immediately had to turn off the TV and stop being distracted <laughs> you know i want to do i want to do a show on tibet and and the tibetans and stuff should we do yeah. that we could do a yeah, little research you know make it a little bit of the historical thing yeah Tell us out, is anybody out there is interested would that be cool you know to to uh 
we we would frame uh, what how Tibet, uh, especially related to its so uh, one is the socio political level, and one would be the spiritual level, and how that knowledge came from North India into Tibet, uh, where uh, it got mixed with the Bon, what was called the Bon religion, which was a, a, like a, a somewhat like I guess uh, Indian um, American Indian and South American Indian. Um, um, the way that they uh, worshipped and the way that they uh, related with the one, however, which way you want to call it. Um, so, uh, and and then obviously inserting uh, the actual beginning of Tibetan Buddhism might be a cool show. Might, I think uh, it would be. I'm two main commentators, Eric Lang and Iron Mountain. Uh, I'd like to hear from both of you about what you would, whether you would want to hear about that. Because they, they talk to us all the time, or they write to us all the time, very brilliantly in many times. And um, tell us what you think, and other people, of course. Yeah. Do you want to hear about Tibet? That's the question. Yeah, do you want to hear about Tibet? I, I have something, though, I wanted to talk about. It's called, uh, it's, it's an article from the New York Times, The Epidemic of Facelessness. Ooh. A world without faces is stripped not only of ethics, but of their biological and cultural foundation. And I thought this was a fascinating article by Stephen Marsh. And um, he's an Esquire columnist, and he wrote a book, The Hunger of the Wolf. So uh, basically, there is a vast dissonance between virtual communication and an actual police officer officer at the door. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sorry, it does? Right, yeah. I'm looking at my thing. Uh, because these pages, you know, it's like hey, I got the whole see, New York Times here. See what I can see now on the sky. Yeah. We're going to a very ragged New York. <laughs> yeah, it's like something the dog dragged this thing out and completely screwed it up. It's a dissonance. We are all running up against more and more the dissonance between the world of faces and the world without faces. And the world without faces is coming to dominate. This is like oh. a science fiction thing, right? Uh, oh no. Yeah. Um so basically um a lot of this, or some of this, was taken around um, faceless rage. You know the shit that goes on? You've read some of it lately around, lately around Twitter, right? Mm. People raving on Twitter and, uh, and getting to the point of threatening uh, on Twitter. And they do it because there's no face to it. Um, there's the guide effect, the well-noted disinhibition. disinhibition created by communications over the distances of the Internet, in which all speech and image are muted and at arm's reach. That produces an inevitable reaction. The desire for impact at any cost, the desire to reach through the screen to make somebody feel something, anything. Is this not fascinating? Yes. Um, a simple comment can be so easily ignored. Rape threat? Not so much. Or as Mr. Nunn recently put it on Twitter, if you can't threaten to rape a celebrity, what is in the point of having them? Whoa. <laughs> wow, that's really intense. Um, and then he quotes from the great French Jewish philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas. Do you know Emmanuel? Emmanuel I, Levinas? I, 
No. Oh, for God's sake. The encounter with another's face was the origin of identity. The reality of the other preceding the formation of the self. The face is the substance, not just the reflection of the infinity of another person. How about that? That's amazing. The what face is the substance, not just the reflection of the infinity. So the substance of the infinity of another person. And from the infinity of the face comes the sense of inevitable obligation, the possibility of discourse, the origin of the ethical impulse. I love that. That is, that's yeah. almost, that's nature. It's yeah. our natures. It's, yeah. it's, it's really goes back to your, to your article, to your blog. It is already self-existing nature. And, and, and obviously this, our face to each other reads everything it reads it's the infinite i just uh, i thought that was fabulous that I is loved it. sorry oh. for all this rattling dave it's all right it's authentic it's authentic new york time paper you wish they'd get some other paper that the ink didn't rub off on you too that would be good i know just do it virtually you know i love the physicality of the newspaper yes through imitation and mimicry we are able to feel what other people feel by being able to feel what other people feel we are also able to respond compassionately to other people's emotional states. Okay, so that's key. Mm. That it's, it takes us into the area of, of our connectivity with everyone. So the, this is it's pretty important. The connection goes the other way, too. Inability to see a face is the mo in the most direct way in inability to recognize shared humanity with another right um do you know that people take uh, 93 million selfies a day okay oh talk about God. i mean mine oh my god uh, it's 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 not a single act but a continuous process of self-portraiture it mimics the changeability and the variety of real human presence. Right? Everything we're doing, um, is, 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 boy, this strikes a chord, this thing. Huh? In a world without faces, this is the last thing I'll read from this. In the world without faces, compassion is a practice that requires discipline, even imagination. Social media seems so easy. The whole point of its pleasure is its sense of casual familiarity. But we need a new art of conversation for the new conversations we are having. And the first rule of that art must be to remember that we are talking to human beings. Never say anything online that you wouldn't say to somebody's face, but also don't listen to what people wouldn't say to your face. The neurological research demonstrates that empathy far from being an artificial construct of civilization, is integral to our biology. And when biological intersubjectivity disappears, when the face is removed from life, empathy and compassion can no longer be taken for granted. The new facelessness hides the humanity of monsters and of victims both. Ooh. Both. Behind the angry tangles of wires, the question is, how do we see their faces again? Terrific, huh? No, no, it's amazingly 
Right. I, you know, I have a comment about that, which I didn't expect to bring up, but I want to, because uh, I was on Facebook uh, a few days ago, and um, a woman wrote this really eloquent, beautiful uh, thing about, you know, you have revelations, and they're incredibly powerful, and how do you keep them? And you mustn't be disappointed uh, when you lose them. It was a wonderfully compassionate thing that this woman, who I'm not going to name because I don't have her permission, wrote. And she talked about the embers of a revelation. And her picture was an ember of a piece of wood, right? So I liked it, you know, because I thought it was beautiful and helpful and compassionate. Within a few seconds, somebody wrote uh, in caps, simply not true. You're wrong. And they went on to a, a, a very detailed Vajrayana Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist analysis of what was wrong with everything she said. And it was completely cold hearted, rude, and without any compassion whatsoever. And then people started saying, right on, brother, right on, brother, you know, adding other comments. I was going to get involved. I didn't because I don't do that. I don't want to get involved in a faceless argument. But what's interesting, given what you just wrote, read, Raghu, is that this woman was trying to do something compassionate on Facebook for people who maybe are a little lost, you know, who've lost something that they had or never had it. We all go through that. And she was just trying to help in a way that wasn't faceless, was beautiful. Immediately, a so-called Buddhist, uh, an academic Buddhist, if you like, attacked her. And it went on. I mean, it was a long thing of attack and, and, and really nasty. And I thought, so this guy knows a lot about Buddhism, but he doesn't know shit. Because that's not what it's about, to attack someone for trying to help. And if he'd have been standing next to her, would he have said it to her face? I rather doubt it. And that, that, what you just read, Ron, is incredibly important stuff because... Yeah. You know, our generation has had a, didn't have any of this when we were young, and, and, and we had to look at each other. Um, at least we had to get on the phone and hear intonations of a voice on the phone. Mm. Uh, now, you could say, well, wait a minute, people Skype and look at each other, which is true, and Skype, we're doing it right now. It's beautiful. But there are variables here that are very dangerous, and one of them is exactly what uh, that person, Marsh was the name of the person who wrote it? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah, they, no, got, got it. Yeah. Got yeah. it. And it's something for everybody to think about. We really do have to uh, consider this reality so that we can do things uh, like this person who obviously was trying to do that on Facebook. Yes. And that's a way, uh, it's a certain tone, it's a certain way of languaging uh, your communications so that they have people can immediately feel, okay, some sense of empathy or compassion or caring or just the most basic level of connect connectivity because that's what connects us, caring. And so if, if this person obviously had that, and I don't know why she was attacked by this uh, pseudo-Buddhist or whatever you want to call well, people who are... Basically what he said was, if you practice like I do, you know, if you get through this version of Vajrayana, you will never lose it which was uh -huh. i mean maybe that's true for him but how did the person feel who wrote the original piece i'm sure she felt sort of attacked yeah and oh, I, I wanted to write to her but I, as i say i don't like to get involved in these debates because then they go on forever and it's weird but um you know sharon salzberg is one of the most brilliant women i've ever met and can spend three weeks without stopping telling her about the intricacies of various forms of buddhist practice the center is meta the center 
is loving kindness. And the same is true for Ramdas and for all our low hanging fruit. And that makes me feel so good to be part of that because it's not some theoretical game. It's really trying, let's try and, as Rodney King said, you know, why can't we all get along? Rodney King from back then? Yeah, remember he said when you after after they've shot the videotape of him being beaten by the police, he said, "Why can't we all get along?" And it became kind of a cliche, and if, he's passed on since then. But you know, there he was, a, a, an African American being attacked by cops, which seems to be happening a lot these days. Um, should be that should be a mantra. Why can't we get along? Considering what is going on in Ferguson and all these other places, it seems to be happening like. Every week, though, it's it's like yeah. staggering that there's these terrible uh, people losing their lives uh, in in the most seemingly innocent. I guess there's just fear around, you know, when some and and this kind of fear generates this horrible. Uh, it seems to be coming from. Sorry, it seems to be coming from what I can gather from various training techniques that have taken over. Mm. That because of a rise of crime in certain um, failed cities like Detroit and St. Louis, um, the police are more trained to uh, react with uh, you know lethal weapons than they are to actually talk people down. I know I've met many police in my life who would never shoot someone like that. And the chief of police of the town where this just happened came on television and was appalled. And you could see it in his eyes. He was appalled by what had happened. And he was clearly a good man. And clearly, he was not just talking points. He was devastated by the shooting. He can't control every cop. Mm. And so, that you know, it's like they say, you know, that all these horror shows are really openings to new uh, knowledge and compassion. And I think that this spate of racism uh, is bringing about some very real uh, response, uh, which is which is positive. Uh, I prefer to think of it that way. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we're at the end of the show. We are? Yeah, uh, time oh. goes by. We're we're just about, uh, know, we're almost an hour into it, and uh, our sponsors only allow one hour per show. Wow, okay. Yeah. And uh, we, our sponsors, it's our community <laughs> that is our sponsors. <laughs> Please. Really this is a Chevrolet mind-rolling hour starring <laughs> Raga Parkers and they <laughs> You could our... sing the dinosaur. Remember the dinosaur thing? Yeah. yeah. I liked those sponsored shows. They had to hold up things like, you know, toilet. <laughs> yeah, right. This show is sponsored by Scott Tissues. Why don't we do that? I mean, we should. We should do. We'll do we, yeah, we're, we're happy. We're People, really, this thing is growing and, and we're getting... Um, more and more interaction and support not just in uh, financially that's happening and you guys book bookmarking amazon you, you more of you seem to be doing it and it's really helping so please continue yes. mindpodnetwork.com we're mind rollers dave and ragu and we will see you next week yes thank Bye, you dave. thank you <laughs>